0: Welcome to The Mariner's Library with me, Chris Dammel major In this episode, we're continuing the book The Taking of the Gry by John Macefield and this is the seventh part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner to help support the podcast or you can check out The Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week or of course The Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. The Taking of the Gray, Part 7. Not long after the gunfire, but before the darkness had set in, a motorboat from the fort at Drake's Islet came out towards us. Seeing uniforms in the stern sheets, I feared that they had come to order us out of the channel, or at least to ask what we were. The uniformed men, turned out to be two subalterns from the garrison, come for an evening's fishing, Seeing that we were getting bites, they remained not far from us, catching several good fish and sometimes holding them up for us to see. When it began to grow darkish and stars were showing, wisps of mist began to form upon the water and to strike cold. They left their fishing at this, swinging round and sped away towards the fort. Presently, the navigation beacons along the coast began to burn and flash. We heard the motorboat's engine thud away into the dusk, and presently, We heard the voices on the islet's landing and a bugle call from within the fort. After that, it was dark, with a silence all about us, only broken by the noise of water on the reefs, the bellboys and the spouts of the roarers. "'What will you do now, sir?' Tollock asked. "'I was thinking I could take your dory back to the naval harbour to see if they've barred the way in.' "'Oh, no need to take a boat, sir,' Tollock said. "'We'll take the tug there. It'll be practice for us and save you a long row.' ''Take the tug part of the way,'' I said. ''Then let me row the rest. ''They'll probably have patrol boats cruising.'' ''Right, sir,'' he said. ''We'll go on until we're stopped. ''That's always the best way.'' ''I've seen nothing more beautiful than that space of reefs ''on the journey back towards the harbour. ''It was dark water, sown with stars and streaking into fire ''wherever a fish moved or a reef broke surface. ''The city, on its low hills to the westward.'' made a great bank of lights which shone in lines and half moons with a few soft crimson stars over the theatres. Part of the President's fiesta that night was a firework display for the citizens. Some few rockets were already being loosed from time to time against the clear, still glowing sky in which the evening star burned. Tolick, Harry and I checked all our estimates for the second time. They told me that they liked the Boneyard the least of the reaches because of the jobble which they felt might make them less able to handle the tow. I'd rather stem it than run it, Tollick said. Still, we can't have everything, that's for sure. Presently, we were headed quietly to the naval harbour, where the beacons on the sea walls were beset with faint streamers or streaks of mist. Now we were going to put it to the touch. Was the entrance barred or patrolled? We were showing the regulation lights of a steamship underway at night and moving at about half speed, I was forward with Harry, marvelling at the beauty and silence, as the little rollers of soft flame move from our bows to shake themselves into spangles against the uncovered rocks at the channel sides. We could see, no boom. There's no boom there, Harry said, they wouldn't set a boom without lighting it. I don't expect a boom, I said, but there will be patrols, or machine guns on the walls. Well, we should see guns or sentries, he said, those beacons give a good light, we drew nearer to the gateway between the beacons. I noticed the great moths beating around the globes in which they burned and the black, big, darting bats preying on the moths. No gun had been mounted on the walls, nor was any sentry or seaman on a beat there. We could see right into the naval harbour, all dark and clear and spangled with lights, across which, now and then, a wraith of mist drove. There's no patrol boat, Harry said. Tolick hailed us from the wheelhouse as we entered the naval harbour. It's as you thought, sir. All clear. No gun, no boom and no patrol. I'll take her right on in and anchor in that tier where the hulks are. Then you can go ashore in the boat and tell your friends that the coast's clear. Then when you're ready, about one in the morning, you could come off with them and we'll try what we've agreed. I do not know what naval harbours are like at night in peacetime as a general rule. I was never in one, before nor since. That one was the most peaceful place that I have seen it was all still, starry and empty. The ships were all old hulks built up into storeships and now seemingly deserted by their watchmen. There were no boats moving there. I noticed a line of red light slowed down on the water where the new boom shut us from the berth we had left. Just as well, sir, Harry said, that we left it when we did. I had expected a police boat or patrol boat to come down upon us at our first appearance within the beacons. None came. Tollick chose a berth in a tier of hulks, rounded to and let go his anchor, not a quarter of a mile from the Gry, whose riding lights were burning brightly, I noticed. Well, here we're well placed, sir, Tollick said, for when we want to take your ship. Here's the sea breeze, Harry said, to clear the air and give pneumonia. I looked round at our neighbours in the tier. We're just a little like a fox, shut in with the hen for the night, I said. No police to bother us here, sir, Tollick said, This is naval water. We shan't be bothered, you'll find. How are we to find you in the thick fog, I asked. Easy, sir. Dead easy, he answered. You can note our direction now. If it's thick fog when you and your friends come off, listen for a special fog signal. A ship's fog signal here is two bells each half minute. Well, listen for a fog bell making three bells every half minute. That will be ours. Harry helped me down into the little pram or dory in which I was to go ashore. From about midnight on, he said, we'll be looking out for you. If we don't see the pram again, well, it will be no great loss. One minute, I said, I'll take some fish. If I'm stopped by a sentry, I can say I've been fishing. I strung some snappers through the gills with rope yarn and pushed off into the mist to find my friends. I pulled a little way out of my course so as to pass the gry. One of the men on her forecastle was playing a zither. The others sat about listening. There was a light at her gangway head and a seaman on duty there. There were lights in two of her deck cabins where her officers, I suppose, were dressing for the levee. Her gig was at her gangway unattended. I pulled under her stern to make sure that she had no stern fasts. She had none. Grau was no doubt right in his surmise that she was left there for the night. On the morrow, she would be berthed at some wharf and discharged if our little plan miscarried. A seaman who was smoking on a poop looked down upon me and passed some remark to me which I did not hear properly. I pulled on away towards the shore feeling, as Harry had foretold, the sea breeze beginning to freshen on my face and the pram to travel the more readily. The wisps of mist which had been floating and trying to settle disappeared before the breeze. Some naval launches towing cutters full of liberty men came past me, going or coming to one or other of the landings. Presently, I was at one of the stairs myself. I hitched the pram's painter to a bolt and hopped up onto the stairs with my fish. The stairs were crowded with naval ratings. I thrust through them to the top, hoping to be able to pass the turnstile unchallenged, but the sentry stopped me and the guardia's came up. ''Are you a naval man?'' ''No,'' I said. ''How you come?'' ''I was fishing,'' I said, holding up my fish. ''When I came back, the boom was across the entrance. I had to come here.'' ''You English?'' ''Yes.'' "'You know business in the naval harbour. You see the Tiente?' or oh, certainly,' I said. However, they were busy with their own business of searching returning Liberty men for rum and seeing the various naval guards away to the palace for the levy. I waited and waited, but was not brought before the Tiente. I was ignored. At last, catching the eye of one guardia, I showed him the edge of a ten-peseta note and winked. He came up at that. I asked him if he would care for some fish.' And let me see the Tiente. He said, Sure, Mike, being a travelled man, and in a few minutes the Tiente came out smiling and let me go through. I left them the pram, the note, the fish, and my blessing. It was now just after half past nine. A taxi took me to the Duke of Riva Street, where I found Signora Grau, her husband, and Tom, all three on tenterhooks, wondering what on earth had happened. Well, all's well so far, I said. The naval harbour has been shut, but the tug is inside it, close to the Gry, and the drake's channel has neither guard nor bar. They sighed, for relief. Then, as happens to the anxious, our minds turned to other possible causes of trouble. Tom began by saying, suppose the Gry's steering gear has been dismantled as a precaution. I ended that by saying it had not been a few hours ago when they shifted her berth. Tom then said, suppose her compass is untrustworthy, Grau and I at once said that she need not steer a compass course, but follow the tug and conform to what the tug did. Then we debated points about the steering. Would she be an unhandy cow to steer? Would the wind get up and put a lop in the channel with sets of current this way or that? Would there be variable currents or jobbles coming in at odd times of the tide across any of the way? Other thoughts cropped up and were mentioned. Suppose the fog sets in too thick. Suppose the tug men betray us. Suppose somebody else betrays us. Suppose we try to get the Gry but are arrested or knocked on the head. Suppose we get her and run her ashore. Suppose we get her and are pursued and caught. Don't think that we were scared. We were resolute to make the attempt. That was beyond question. We were only anxious to be doing and found that the waiting made us nervous. Come now, Senora Grau said. This will not do. Here it is, only ten o'clock. We are all as nervous as can be with a couple of hours still to wait. Suppose we all go to a cinema to take our minds off it till nearer the time. This was the wisest supposing that we had supposed and we went out. It is a good many years since we went to the cinema and I have forgotten the name of it but it was about a southern republic whose president robbed the treasury and escaped to live happily ever afterwards in the south of Spain. It put new heart into us. We all took it as a good omen that the image of a successful fraud should appear to us at that time. In the midst of it, reaches of Drake's passage floated into my mind like pictures of reef and rock, with the water white upon them and the two roarers spouting and giving tongue, the bellboys clanging and the boneyard waiting. Probably, during the war, every man had some horrible hours of waiting for something to begin that would be grim enough in the beginning and yet was grimmer in the waiting for... That night in the cinema was a sort of foretaste of the war to me. Presently, it would be time to start. And then there would be dangers, like the leaps at Aintree. The police, the naval patrols, the possible treacheries, the probable accidents and the fog that was almost certain. Now and then, when lights went up after the reels, I could see Senora Grau impassive. Grau with his lower jaw working oddly as he swallowed. Tom, rather white and strained, thinking, as he told me afterwards, of moments in the fighting at Santa Ana when things had seemed to be going wrong. Presently, the performance ended. We were quit of shelter and warmth and light, and we were for outlawry and what chance might bring. When we were back at Duke of Riva Street, we helped Senora Grau to prepare a meal, sardines of darkish bread, rather sweet to taste, some raisins of the sun and oranges. She made us coffee in a big blue and white jug, We drank big bowls of it, made syrupy with sugar candy. After this, we smoked yellow Santa Barbara cigarettes. Presently, Senora Grau opened one of the windows and let in a fresh draught of air from the sea breeze that was now dying and with it, of course, the noise of the surf on the outer breakwater. It is wonderful noise, the surf, she said. The sea breeze always touches up the surf, Grau said, but it is dying down now. We listened to it for a moment. Apart from the noise of the clicking curtain rings and the roll of the water breaking, there was almost no noise in that quiet alley. Perhaps the clop of a horse going by with a caleche or the bell of a religious house. Then, in the midst of the silence, we heard, rather far away, the notes of a band playing. We will rally round the banner of our fathers. Sayest, Grau said. The band is playing the opening of the gates for the reception. Time to dress, Tom said. We went into another room where Tom's new uniform was laid out. Some surges were there for me, but I thought it wiser to come as I was, as a member of the Tug's English crew. Grau, dressed elsewhere in a staff lieutenant's uniform. When we met again in the saloon, Senora Grau joined us. She wore the black mantilla of her race, but I believe she thought that she was dressed as Mrs Tollick. We all shook hands. Senora Grau poured out for each of us a little golden liqueur, which she called the kiss of peace. We drank to each other and wished our adventure good luck. I'm sure that the three good Catholics prayed. I just hoped that somehow I might help Tom to pull it off. Then we went down the stairs and out of doors. The door closed behind us, shutting us out from safety among outlaws and defiers of the peace. We turned towards the front, noting that the sea wind had now died. People do not seem to go to bed in Santa Barbara. The streets are often populous till two in the morning. However, on that night, the crowds had gone to the palace to see the sights of the levee and to hear the band. The streets down to the waterfront were quiet, save for two men strolling slowly down, one of them playing a mandolin and the other humming. Tom and Grau walked in front. Senora Grau and I followed. Senora Grau carried a little dispatch case. I had a handbag containing a lead line with a seven-pound lead and a Thompson's indicator. I kept saying to myself, after use at sea, this instrument must be soaked for an hour in fresh water before being oiled and put away. We came out on the silent, still waterfront, where no breath of breeze now blew. We saw the lights on the water and the flash of the occulting beacons. There's the fog, Tom said. He nodded towards a streak like a ghostly shore lying across the reef a mile away. It is settling in, Grau said, after he had watched it for an instant. Come on, right turn, Tom said. We turned to the right and walked on as before. As we crossed the public gardens in the glare of the arc lights, some naval ratings who were lounging on the benches there leaped to attention and saluted. Tom returned the salute gravely. We walked on with our hearts beating and our minds empty, but all focused on a point of excitement. There's the prize, Tom said, pausing to look to seaward. Where's your slasher? Beyond her, a little to the left, I said. The mist is on her now. You'd better say my captain when you speak to me, Tom said. Yes, my captain. Good, come on then. There's the naval landing pier ahead. We are for it now. The naval landing pier looked outwardly like a suburban railway station. It was a sort of shed with many printed regulations hung on its outer walls. Inside the door were turnstiles with sentry boxes. The sentry, who had been having a quiet cigarette, dashed up to the turnstile as we approached and unhooked the catch of the turnstile before he saluted. Moon and star, Tom said, returning the salute, and so we passed in without any question. In the covered space beyond the turnstile, there were two small naval guns mounted on field gun carriages for seamen practising landing party, probably, I remember that there were some leather fire buckets in a rack. They were painted red and contained a lot of cigarette ends. At the sides of the jetty head, one heard the lap and slop of water touched up against the piles by some boat passing in the harbour. I could see bright lights on the water from the moored torpedo boats close in. Sentry, Tom said. What men have you here in the guardroom? Six, my captain, the man replied. I want them, Tom said. Fall them out. The sentry saluted. "'went to the guardroom and fell them out. "'They were a sort of squad for the master-at-arms. "'They were there, I suppose, "'to search returning leave men for spirits. "'They were in the naval undress of vests and working trousers. "'They lined up and stood to attention. "'I want two more,' Tom said. "'Sentry, go call those two men from the street there. "'The sentry's not supposed to stir, sir,' the sentry stammered. "'Not from his post. "'Go call them,' Tom said, and the man did.' The two men came in, wandering, from the street. They were both first-class seamen, dressed for an evening's leave. They were plainly much puzzled at being called, but seeing an officer in a blaze of gold lace, they saluted. ''I want you,'' Tom said. ''Fall in here.'' So they fell in. ''Sentry,'' Tom said. ''Call me a steam picket boat.'' ''Is it the Admiral's launch, sir?'' the sentry asked. ''Yes,'' Tom said. ''Will you wait for just one moment, sir?'' the sentry said. ''There is a party coming.'' Let the party through, you, Tom said to one of the seamen, and you, sentry, call me the launch. The sentry ran to the jetty side and blew two shrill blasts on his whistle, which were answered at once by a picket boat lying at a little distance from the pier. At the same time, a small party of naval ratings, in charge of a petty officer, came to the turnstile, gave the password, and came through to where we stood. They were defaulters, I think, who had been doing fatigue of some sort in the President's palace, washing dishes, very likely, They stared at Tom's uniform pretty hard as they stood at attention. They belonged to the prison ship Retribution. Their boat and guard were waiting for them. The sentry returned to Tom, saluted and said, The Admiral's steam launch is alongside, sir. Tom turned to his eight men, told them to turn right and get into the launch. They right turned and they went. Tom and we three others followed to where a fine big steam launch lay alongside the jetty with the bow-fast and stern-fast men both ashore, standing at attention with their caps off. We could see the engine men in the glow of the well, also standing at attention. Tom hopped down into the stern sheets and took his seat under the coloured awning. Grau followed him. I helped Senora Grau aboard, and together we made ourselves small, well forward from Tom and Grau. The naval ratings ignored us, I suppose as civilians of some sort beneath their notice. Sentry, Tom called. Sir? Have you blankets in the guardroom? Yes, sir. And bring them for these men here. The sentry brought the blankets, Tom told the eight men who were clustered forward to wrap themselves against the cold. For the night struck chill with the fog coming. They did as they were bid. Let go aft, Tom said. Shove ahead, engineer. Without any questions, the men obeyed. Let go forward, Tom said. Shove off. So far there had not been the least hitch anywhere. The way had been made smooth for us beyond our dreams. Here there came a little hitch. The bowman, though a smart hand, slipped as he cast loose forward and fell rather clumsily among the men in the boat's bows. It was not a pleasant omen to myself, I must say. Are you hurt there, bowman? Tom asked. "Uh, No, sir. Thank you, sir. The boat was one of great power. The engine sheared her off at speed. Wherefore, sir? he asked. On service, out towards the reef, Tom said. We have to board a tug there. Go slow till we see her. Aye, aye, sir. We were silent enough on that passage i kept track of our course as we drove out towards the reef now and then i passed the word to grow who told the coxswain the men forward from me huddled into their blankets not speaking though they must have wondered what kind of service they were pressed for before we had gone 300 yards the wisps of fog were curling about us go slow tom said to the coxswain slower yet we may miss her in this fog Presently, we were past the gruy. There was the slasher on our port bow, with the smoke rising white from her funnel. I pointed her out to Grau, who told the coxswain to bring her alongside the tug there. This he did, smartly, with a word to the launchees to tend their boat hooks. A tug hand dropped down a line. Then Harry roused over the side a rope ladder with wooden treads by which Tom and I went aboard the tug. Leaning down over the side, Harry and I helped Senora Grau on board. Tom told Grau to stay in the launch, "'Drop astern on the line and wait for a few minutes. "'Where's Captain Tollock?' Tom asked. "'I'm sorry to say,' the mate said. "'I'm sorry indeed to have to say, "'but he's had cruel news by the mail "'and his heart is broken.' "'Do you mean that he's dead?' "'No, sir,' Harry said. "'Not dead, but it's laid him low. "'It's about his son.' "'Can I see him?' Tom asked. "'Yes, sure, sir,' Harry said. "'But I don't think he'll answer you. "'I've known Joe Caesar like it before over his son. "'He's all heart, Joe.' though you might never think it to look at him, sir. Come along to his cabin, sir. Julius Caesar Tollock was sitting on the hard, black, horsehair top of his locker. He looked as though the spine and every nervous power in him had been suddenly removed. The change from a few hours before, when he had been so alert, lively and quick, ready to take in every point and to act upon it, was shocking. His face was gone grey and ghastly. The moustache and whiskers had a collapsed look. He didn't seem to see us. His eyes were fixed on some picture of misery which we could neither see nor share. ''Joe, old man,'' Harry said, ''here's the captain come to see you.'' Tollock shook his head a little, but paid no attention. ''Won't you speak to him, Joe?'' Harry said. ''You'd be better if you could shake it off a little and take your mind off it.'' Tollock did not show that he had heard. ''Joe,'' Harry said again, ''you'll rouse and bit, won't you? It's time for us to be getting to it, getting underway with these gentlemen.'' We waited for a full minute for some sign of thought or deed from the broken man. None came. It's no good, Harry said. It has hit him too hard this time. we would better leave him. When we were out on deck again, Tom asked Harry if he would take charge in place of Tollock and attempt the channel without him. I'll try, of course, Harry said. The tug's ready, but without Joe, I'm only half a man. We've worked together for years and we work as one. You do indeed, I said. I suppose Captain Tolick would have steered while you would have been forward. I've got the hang of the channel and something of the way you work. Let me be forward while you steer. I won't let you down. I'm sure you won't, sir, Harry said. I've got the channel in my head, I said. Yes, sir, Harry said, you're a pilot, but this is more a question of towage, reckoning what to allow for this and that. However, no man can make a better pudding than what he's got groceries for. It was not complimentary, but there was a sense in it. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.